Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 299. So close. So close of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Hello, Adam. How's it going? Good. How are you? It's moving week for me. Yes, it is. Yeah, I'm very excited. Um, I'm doing really, really well. It's still, like, unseasonably warm here. Yes, it is. We haven't gotten any, like, big snow, knock on wood. I want that to hold off one more week. Way to go, Adam. I know now it's going to happen, but that's okay. Um, Yeah, hope everyone had a nice weekend. Our last episode was January books, so I hope you checked that out. And if you didn't, we have all sorts of really good stuff there. Um, one of the books I briefly mentioned was The First Conspiracy, uh, co-written by Brad Meltzer. And that's today's episode is a interview I did with Brad. Um, we talked like two and a half years ago about a book of his and also about the Muppets and stuff. He was like episode 29 or Way 30. Way back in the beginning. Yeah. I really hope he's 29 because if he's 29 and 299, that <sighs> would be, be very, be very soothing. <laughs> I'll check. Um, but the, we, this story is crazy. I'm not going to give anything away before the interview other than the fact that um, there is this secret, really very little known plot to try and kill George Washington before the Revolutionary War. And he uncovered it with his co-writer and they dive into it and they basically turn it into a, it's a nonfiction book, but it is, reads like a thriller. And we also talk about Emmett Otter because it was right before Christmas. Mm, um, yeah. So we talked about that a little bit and just... Yeah, it was really good times. We talked about some of his other books too, and he has a TV show coming. I don't know. I asked him. I don't know when he sleeps. Like, maybe he doesn't. He might not. He's just one of those people where he just <laughs> seems like he's always doing something. Right. You know, I don't understand how he's able to to do it all. So, um, yeah. So that's today's interview. If people want to get a hold of us, where can they find us? They can visit our website, professionalbooknerds.com. There, you can get links to all of our social. We are on Instagram and Twitter at pobooknerds. You can join our Vibra community from there. You can get our reading challenge from there. Just go to professionalbooknerds.com. Yeah. It's all there. It's all there. You can get our 30-day reading challenge from there, too. Someone asked us on Instagram or Twitter last night, like, is it too late to do this? And as we've told people, like, you can do that whenever you want. Grab, yep. Grab that from our, our website and and go go crazy and be sure to tag us because it's fun to see those. Um also, you're definitely going to want to follow our, our social media if you're not already because our episode 300, we're going to do something really cool for a giveaway. So you have to be following us to be entered in that. Um, anything else you think people should know about? I don't think so. All right, cool. Well, this episode uh, with Brad Meltzer was so much fun. I laughed a lot, and I'm sure you guys will as well. And Definitely go check out, buy, borrow, request uh, The First Conspiracy. It's wonderful. So hope you guys enjoy this chat with Brad on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Adam again, and I am ridiculously excited to be chatting with Brad Meltzer, the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Escape Artist, Inner Circle, and many other titles for adults and children alike. He's been a TV host, a historian, an activist. Uh, He's also been a past guest on this exact podcast about two years ago, actually a little longer than two years ago. We were talking about 
his book House of Secrets at that point, so that's almost two and a half years ago. And most importantly, in my mind, something we talked about before, he's also been a Muppet. So your new book comes out on January 8th with John uh, Josh Mensch, titled The First Conspiracy, and we're going to dive all into that. But first, Brad, thank you so much for joining us today. No, I appreciate you having me back. Usually I don't get invited back to places to meet me. <laughs> um, I will say, okay, last time for listeners of the podcast, they might remember... Uh, Brad and I remember we have a mutual love of all things Muppets. And so this interview is going to go out in January when the book comes out. But at time of recording, we're like a week before Christmas. So I have to give you a platform to tell everyone, even though it will have passed, why is Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas the best thing that's ever been created? Listen, there some things require no explanation. Um, <laughs> and it is... It is my one... It is just a pen, I, I know we're supposed to all say we love the Muppet movie on Sesame Street, and I do... Um, but Amidata's Jug Band Christmas was the movie at this little thing that was on HBO back when I was a kid growing up. And my sister and I used to watch it. And HBO used to run, like, you know, it would run a movie at, like, 12 o'clock and then 4 o'clock mm-hmm. and then 8 o'clock and then 10 o'clock. Like, that's just how it – and we would watch it every time it was on. There was no <laughs> DVR. There was no, you just watched Emmett Otter and it just burned its way into our, its way into our souls. Um, and we just went, I will tell you, I, I don't know if you did, but we went, I think my whole family, the re-release happened last week, mm-hmm. um, where they re-released it into theaters around the country for one day only, and we were there. I will say, I, uh, my wife and I are building a house right now, so as fate would have it, I'm actually living in my parents' house for the next couple of weeks until everything's finished up, and growing up, we always watched Eminem or Jug Band Christmas after Midnight Mass, we would go home and we would watch it with hot chocolate and things like that. And we've since transitioned to adult beverages after to watching it. But we also did the same thing because I was with my family. We went last week and did the exact same thing. So we are one and the same there. That's great. So Okay, we. I had to get that out first because I knew at some point I was going to bring up something Emmett Otter and it wasn't going to make a lot of sense regardless. But it, that was more for me than for our, our listeners. So Okay, now we can talk about the thing that's actually coming out at the time of this release. Uh, can you maybe give everybody a little bit of an introduction into The First Conspiracy, because this story is wild. Sure. The First Conspiracy starts, um, it's my first nonfiction book. I usually write mysteries and thrillers and murder people all day long. But The First Conspiracy is a story about a secret plot to kill George Washington. And when this is a real story, it really happened. When George Washington found out about it at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, he rounded up those uh, responsible. He took one of the people responsible, and he built a gallows, and he hung them in front of 20,000 people. At that point, it was the largest public execution in North American history. 20,000 people watched this man die. George Washington brought the hammer down, said, do not mess with me. I'm George Washington. I'm, I got a wig, man. Like, he was just not messing around. Um, and I just was blown away by the story and was like, how do we not, it, it begs the question, why do we not know that story? Um, and the reason you don't know it, or at least I didn't know it, mm-hmm. is because it took place, the hanging took place on June, on June 28th, 1776. Now guess what else was taking place on mm-hmm. June 28th, 1776, or what was about to take place? On that day, you have the first draft of the Declaration of Independence being handed in. You have the British uh, Navy literally coming right there into New York Harbor, um, preparing to, you know, start. This is going to be it. This is the fight. And, you know, when you're doing the headlines for that week's news, 
those headlines uh, far outweighed the hanging that took place in New York City. And so it wound up just becoming a footnote to history, but I was determined to pull it apart. And the first conspiracy is the story of what actually happened and how close George Washington was to being murdered. Uh, okay, I, I understand that it's kind of a footnote to, you know, the signing of the Declaration of Independence and everything, but, I mean, it is a massive footnote, and I am pretty proud of the amount of history I, I know. I had never heard of the story. Like, is there really no other, like, sinister reason that this does, hasn't really seen the light of day other than the fact that it happened about, you know, a week before the signing of the Declaration of Independence? Like, it just feels like this should be all over history books. I think part of it, and listen, you know, when, when I first, I found the story in a footnote, an actual footnote, uh, almost a decade ago. And when I found it, I was like, well, is this real? Is this fake internet nonsense? Like, what is it? And I couldn't shake it. In fact, I used it in one of my thrillers when I did a book called The President's Shadow, probably like five or six years ago. It's on a page in there. I mentioned it for like a little paragraph. But I couldn't shake the story. And I went to, when I was trying to figure it out, to Pulitzer Prize-winning author Joseph Ellis, who, of course, wrote one of the big Washington biographies. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, you know the story. And he had, he had known the story. He's like, but I'm just going to tell you, he warned me that, you know, if you want to find how many slaves Washington owned, they document you can find how many slaves he owned. Mm-hmm. But he said, but this is a story about his spies. This is a story that was meant to be secret. And he said, you're never, ever going to be able to find all of George Washington's spies. So by its nature, what you're looking for is going to be elusive. And he said, at the very best, you get a book. At the worst, you have a little adventure. Go check it out. <laughs> and, and the amazing part was there was no modern book written about it. Nothing modern. Any good George Washington biography should have a page on it, paragraph on it, maybe a footnote on it. But nothing that had the full story. And we started with that. But again, I, in terms of answering your question, why... I mean, you'll see our answers in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, This was a time where George Washington is trying to convey strength, right? It's the beginning of the war. The British are literally here. Uh, The last thing you want to be saying at that moment in time is that your own men turned on you. And that's the heartbreaking part of it. Um, But I can't possibly tell you that that's definitively the reason, because you're asking me to get in the head of George Washington. And unlike (laughs) Adams and unlike Jefferson, who are writing flowery letters about their feelings to everyone who would listen... Mm. George Washington kept his cards close to the vest. He never told anyone what he was really feeling. I mean, this is even on the day when that when the hanging took place, he never says he says barely anything about it. This is like, you know, the one of the the person who was hung was one of his own personal bodyguards. And George Washington at the time, uh, he wanted real, you know, guards to to take care of him. And he asked all of his regiments for their top four men. He said, give me your four best men. He wanted what they called back then drilled men. And drilled men meant, give me the best you got. And then George Washington narrowed all those to like a top 50 or so. And those became his personal bodyguards. And they were called the president's, they were called the general's guard. They were called his personal bodyguards. The name that really stuck with them was they were called the lifeguards because they guarded the money, they guarded his papers. But the thing that they were guarding was George Washington's life. So his personal bodyguards were known as the lifeguards. And these were the men who turned on him. These are his own personal guards. These are supposed to be the best of us. And those are the ones who betray him. And I don't care how strong you are or how amazing you are in our history, that has to be devastating. Mm-hmm. And George Washington doesn't say a word about it. Never says, my gosh, my feelings are hurt. Never said, I can't believe this happened. Nothing. Like, it didn't happen at all. Um, and if we couldn't find 
the secret tribunal, we found that the, and you see in the book, as you know, mm -hmm. you see the transcript. We actually have the transcript of the trial that took place when I hung this guy. We would have no way to even prove it happened. But luckily there was someone that was transcribing the whole thing. I was just going to say, I mean, people can find out a lot about this, obviously, when they when they read the book. But how did with George Washington playing his cards so close to the vest, like you said, and, and you know, keeping it all under wraps, I, how did you go about like Take us through how you were able to find some of this information, like where in what the Library of Congress tiny room was this hidden? I'm just like, how do you go from clue to clue to piece together what is such a full story yeah and listen full credit to my co-writer on this book josh mentz who was a research machine he worked on us on our tv show lost history he was the executive producer mm -hmm. he's an amazing documentarian amazing researcher and you know we like to think of ourselves as like modern day indiana jones and the theme song is playing <laughs> and i'm running you know and and through the dusty cavern and i'm like throw me the idol and i'll throw you the whip and you know it's like and then i figure out and find this thing and i put it in the book and the first conspiracy is launched um, the sad truth is, is that most of this stuff is all available out there. It's digitized even. Mm -hmm. um, you, no one wants to read it because it's old and boring. <laughs> we, you know, we just read it. That's all. Like the the tribunal was in. You know, it wasn't in in the court records because it was a it was a secret court. Um, but it was in the New York Provincial Congress. So if you go to the New York Provincial Congress's uh, you know, records, there it is. It, the problem is, is you, know, you don't even know to look for it because it's such a tiny part of history. Um, and the real fun part, I will say, is once once we knew the date of the hanging, then you can work backwards and look at Washington's letter on the day before and the day after. You can see, you know, his top military aides, who's writing on those days. Um, and, and with a little bit of great legwork, um, you, you know, you can really find the answers out there and and that's what was really helpful is, is being able to suddenly you start finding you know what when, when twenty thousand people watch something mm. on a certain day they start writing letters you know they don't put it on twitter they don't put it on facebook they used to write letters about it i just saw this guy hang i was in this open field twenty thousand other people were there it was the most crazy thing i ever saw and they, and that's when you start getting people to you know the, the myth machine starts because what people start doing as you all know when twenty thousand people watch anything you get 20,000 different views of it. Um, and the fun part for us was trying to figure out, okay, who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't, and where is the truth in all of this madness. So that's actually, you touched on something really, really interesting there that I, I don't think I ever thought about until you just mentioned it. But um, for people who are familiar with your work, they'll know that you've done a ton of you know, historical research and you do a lot of kind of deep dives for things, even if it's for your, your fiction work, you do a ton of diving into history for those those stories. And you mentioned once you had a date, you could kind of go and find the letters that were written. So is that kind of the key for anything for you when you're, you're looking up these little-known stories and potential conspiracy theories and things is, is finding a date and then being able to start there and, like, you know, library records and, and various places? Uh, I mean, you know, again, not to ruin the magic trick, but the real answer <laughs> is you got to find the thing. you got to find the things that there aren't a lot of. Mm -hmm. So... Thomas Hickey's name, the man who died. You know, if I search for George Washington, good luck. Mm -hmm. If I search for Thomas Jefferson, good luck. If I search for the revolution and death, good luck. But when you have the name Thomas Hickey, the one man who died, you're like, huh, let me try and use that. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, again, the beauty of the digital age is you can find, for anyone that's transcribed, you can find that. And, and 
that makes, you know, it's not necessarily a needle in a haystack anymore, but you kind of want the needle. You want that thing that can kind of bring all this information that's been written, all these old letters that can bring it out. So sometimes it's a date, sometimes it's an obscure detail. Um, you'll see in the book one of the great ways that they found that. I don't want to ruin the book, but one of the ways they found out about the plot um, were these two men that were in a jail cell. Mm-hmm. And once you found what their crime was, you were like, oh, okay, now I know what that crime is. Let's keep an eye on them. And each little detail just becomes another one of those puzzle pieces that you you get to kind of lay down until the picture starts becoming clear. All right, so aside from the obvious, uh, you know, oh my God, George Washington was almost murdered in a secret plot. What was kind of the craziest thing you uncovered about all this? It doesn't even have to be something that you put in the book, but like, was there something that just kind of like an aha moment that uh, like blew yours and Josh's minds when you were doing the research for this? I mean, I think one of them was, um, and again, full credit to Josh here. He, he is so obsessive. He, you know, what? Again, they didn't have televisions or phones, or you know, their entertainment was drinking, going out and drinking. Mm-hmm. You know, you have the entire military, the Continental Army is coming to New York City, and all the, a lot of the New Yorkers are like, "I'm getting out of here. There's gonna be a war here." So they're leaving, and now you got a bunch of guys stuck in New York City. Guess what they're doing? They're drinking nonstop, and they're and there's prostitution everywhere. They're drinking and they're gambling and they're and they're going to you know literally to like places of ill repute. And he went so crazy obsessive. He figured out what on like rum back then, what the proof of rum was to see what it lasted. I think he said it was they drank on a daily basis five shots of rum, and their rum was like. Uh, I'm getting a number wrong, but it was like, you know, five times as strong as the rum that we have today. Oh my God. Like, these guys were just dead. I mean, you think New York is crazy now. Like, <laughs> New York was just bananas. And they and he did the percentage of, like, prostitutes. He, he found some census or something that showed him how many prostitutes were in the city, and then he cross-checked on, like, how many people were in the city. And it was, like, some crazy number of, like, you know, like 10% of the people in New York were cross. Like, again, it's in the book, like, what the God. detail was. But I just remember being like, that's bananas. Mm-hmm. Like, that's real life. That's not just like, oh, George Washington is, is on his boat sailing across the Delaware. You know, like he's, this is what real life was like. And Washington was a stickler against all of it. He hated gambling. He put out his, his general orders, you know, no gambling, no drinking. He wanted to stop all of that because he was, he was a polished, civilized man. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a rich man. You know, he came, he wasn't educated. He didn't go to college, you know, he, but he was taught, taught by his brothers. Um, but man, did he care about making sure that we had some self-respect, and and that was one part. The other part, I think, for me is we're a country that is founded on legends and myths, and the legends and myths that we love most are our own. So we love to think that the Revolutionary War is a moment where we're a ragtag group of underdogs, and we just hold hands and come together, and we defeat the British, the greatest fighting force the world has ever known, and boy, what a great day that was. Um, and it's a great story, but it's not the real story. Mm-hmm. And and the real story, as always, is more complicated. We know we think we're divided now. We hated each other back then. The Connecticut regiment hated the Massachusetts regiment. Hated the the regiment from New Jersey. They just they all were like they didn't even wear the same uniforms. They we, there was no uniform. Like half the guys were wearing like just work clothes. <laughs> and what I love in that moment is. That George Washington, you know, we have people look at any politician today, wherever your politics are, um, just look at a, at a politician today, and they love to kind of like 
bathe the flag around themselves and, and, you know, stand for those grand things, there was no flag back then. There were no United States. Mm -hmm. George Washington had to help build them with his hands and with respect and by bringing us together. And one of the stories that I love most in the whole book, and maybe my favorite one in there, is the Battle of Brooklyn. It's the first major battle. Mm -hmm. Um, They've just hung the person responsible for killing Washington. Now they're going into battle, one of their first battles. And we like to think this is the moment where we got it. We're going to bring it home. Here comes the victory. (laughs) We come together and we get our butts kicked. (laughs) George Washington gets out generaled. The military guys get outmaneuvered. Um, we don't have the experience that the military leaders and the British, you know, have, and we get our asses kicked. Mm-hmm. And George Washington, in that moment, is pinned down. He can easily say, "You know what? I'm going to do. I'm going to take out as many of these guys as I can. We're going to go out in a blaze of glory, and, and we're going to kill them all. Let's go." And he doesn't. Instead, instead of beating his chest and showing what a macho guy he is, George Washington does the best thing he always does: is he adapts. Mm-hmm. And he basically says, no, we're not going to kill everyone or risk and killing ourselves. He's like, we're going to have a daring escape. And all these ships come in the middle, pinned against the East River, and he has all these boats come in the middle of the night, these little pontoons. And, and he, But here's the moment. is He doesn't get on the ship, on any ship, until all of his troops get on before him, even the lowest-ranking guys. And that's the moment where our men look around and see that this leader is willing to risk his life for them. And that, to me, is why George Washington, if he looked at where our state of affairs was today in politics, he'd be embarrassed. Like, just to Mm -hmm. look around and see how divided we are, how much we hate each other. Whatever side your politics are on, you hate the other side. Um, We've lost the sign of United States of America. We've forgotten the word united. Well, and... Even like early on, you're talking about none of that aspect of that particular battle would have been possible if he didn't have so much kind of humility. Like I, it's early on in the book, and I can't remember how many phrases. It's like a hundred different lines that he wrote out, basically about like how yeah, to be. Yeah, the hundred. Yeah, let's talk about those. Those are great. So he has. Yeah, he, when he's a little kid, um, and they still don't know if he did it because it was an assignment because he loves to. But he, he wrote physically wrote out there were like a hundred and ten rules of civility to live by. Right. And they were the craziest rules. They were like, you know, don't pick your teeth, don't spit on people when you talk to them. Um, but there were also, you know, those are silly ones, and we hope you all have learned that one. But there are ones that are really amazing, which are, you know, be a man of your word and, and be, a, you know, like, and and George Washington cared about those things. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, even though he wasn't raised in that money, um, when he met the Fairfaxes, they taught him how to live. They taught him how to be a proper Virginian gentleman. And he believed that that's the way the world should be. And you're suddenly coming to the debauchery of New York and all these men who are fighting each other. You know, when, when he gets to, when they're in Massachusetts, it's one of, another scene in the book you'll see, is they get to Massachusetts and they're in Harvard Yard and all the troops are kind of coming together at a meeting place. And when the Massachusetts regiments see the Virginia regiment, they're making fun of the frilly neck things that they're wearing. <laughs> and a huge fight breaks out, and they're trading them. George Washington rides in on his horse, grabs two of the guys on opposing sides, he's literally shaking them and throttling them, saying, do not fight each other. Stop trying to kill each other. If ever there was a metaphor for where we are today. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, that's, that's one of those moments where you, where you realize just what an amazing guy he was and what he was working against. And I think that's the... That that's the, the to me the the fun part is when you really see that 
you let that that myth fall away that everything was perfect and everything was easy and you see how hard it was and how it still happened that's inspiring to me and and something that you guys did that i abs- i'm really fascinated by the way is you wrote this book kind of in, in present tense and it's very much meant it feels like a thriller like if you didn't tell someone this was nonfiction, they likely would believe that you guys made this story up but I imagine you wrote this in that fashion by design to keep people um, kind of on the edge of their seat. Like, I mean, obviously, uh, spoiler alert to everyone, D- George Washington... We win. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. We win. George Washington doesn't die. But it's still, like, you're right. still kind of holding your breath at the end of each chapter. That had to be by design, right? Yeah, no. I mean, listen, I, I'm a thriller writer. For 20 years, I've been writing thrillers. Um, and I wanted something that wasn't just boring history. You know, the number one thing that people tell me when they read my books is... I love learning something. Mm-hmm. I love that I got to learn that thing. And then the pages move so quickly. And I said, well, why are nonfiction books like that, too? Why aren't they interesting and fascinating as, as the real life was? I mean, believe me, when, if, when this was happening in real time, it was frigging madness, <laughs> right? It, this was the greatest story that was never told in that moment. So why shouldn't the reading experience feel the same way? And to me, it's not. it wasn't like a... By design, like you know what I'm going to do. I'm going it, to. It's just how I know how to write. I'm a thriller writer, mm-hmm. so I want a good cliffhanger. And it's funny, my wife, who was impressed with nothing that I do, um, <laughs> she re- she read this book and she's like, "Let me see this thing you're doing. Let's do what you what kind of mess you're making." And and she said to me, uh, and only people who know my wife will really get the depth of this. But she said, "You know, I, I didn't know what I, I hate nonfiction. I never read it. Um, this was really great. This was like the best." And, I, and it wasn't me, because she wasn't complimenting me. It was, this is an incredible story. It just is. Um, you literally see the people who are conspiring to go after Washington. You see how we caught them. You see how, at that moment, all of history could have been changed by, like, two jailhouse snitches whispering to each other. Again, I don't want to ruin the moment, but mm-hmm. when, when those moments all come together, you're like, oh, my gosh. If I wrote that in a book, my editor wouldn't believe it. <laughs> but it, it all really happened. And, they, and, and it happened to George Washington, of all people. Okay, so I want to have you put on your alternate history hat here. So uh, let's say they're successful and they are able to end George Washington's life. Other than Lin-Manuel not having an important character in a, in a musical, like, what happens? Do you think there's anyone that was around at that time that possessed the... Um, I guess gumption, for lack of a better word, to to lead us. Like, or do you think that we're all, you know, has speaking with a, a British accent now, and and things are on the status quo if he doesn't make it? Well, first of all, make no mistake, we were speaking with a British accent then too. That's fair. You know, George Washington most likely had a British accent. That's fair. Right? We don't know for sure, but I'll just. But if I, I get your point, right? Great mm-hmm. point. Um, and and you know, this is the idealist in me, but I like to believe, um, that at that moment in time, the right person rises. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do. I don't feel like, oh my gosh, if he just died, everything falls apart. I mean, it's, you know, it's just, but that being said, George Washington's greatest legacy and greatest victory in my mind has nothing to do with the Revolutionary War. It has nothing to do with being the great general. It has nothing to do with even being the president or being the president a second time for the second term. His greatest moment comes right after we win. And the painter Benjamin West is with King George, and and King George says, what's George Washington going to do right now? He won. What is he going to do? And they said, he's going home. 
and because and, at that point George Washington could have been king. Mm-hmm. You know, he was so beloved. We won the war. They could have made him king. We were used to a king rule. Let's make him one of ours. We'll just put it in place. He could have easily been the king. And when when he said he's he's going home, King George said, if he does that, he'll be the greatest man who ever lived. And that's exactly what George Washington does. And he does it again after a second term. He could have easily continued on and, and said, you know what, I'm going to do a third term and a fourth term and just be the permanent ruler of this country. But instead he has faith in us as a country and faith in us as a people. And that's his great, you know, that's the great legacy. So I think where everything goes wrong is that's where it goes wrong. Not only did he have faith in everyone, but the, you know, that, that farewell address that he gives, like, he starts talking about just continuing with like the whole humility of him like he begins with the whole speech by talking about how, all the errors that he's sure he's made and that he hopes that people can forgive him and it's like this man created a country and he's still you know i talk about someone who is you know a person to look up to from a uh, you know from like a what kind of makes him who he is sort of thing he literally begins the speech after being the first president of our country by apologizing and hoping that he did an okay job like i just well, that's character, character, character. And, and, and for me, the, you know, the thrill of writing the first conspiracy was never, oh, let's tell a plot about the secret plot to kill George Washington. That's fun, and that's fine. But it, we had to reveal something about Washington's character. It had to be about him. He ha- you know, mm-hmm. we could have started the book with, like, you know, nothing but murder plots and things like that. But, you know, the, after the prologue, the very first thing you see is him, you know, after the death of his brother, when he's all alone. He's lost his father, lost his brother, lost everything. He's got nothing. Um, and, and I don't care who you are, again, or how strong you are. That's devastating. And, you know, you have to kind of, we, we all know George Washington. We know what he looks like. We see him on the money on a daily basis. But oddly, we know the least about him as a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, he wasn't like Jefferson or Adams, who were, you know, writing all of his feelings out all the time. Washington was much more reserved, and so we don't know him. And so one of the things we really tried to explore in, in the first conspiracy is his character, where it comes from, and, and what do you learn in an experience like this where your closest men turn on you. Um, and what you see in the book is it leads to an entirely different change in how we fight. It, you know, George Washington starts this, uh, this as you see, again, not to ruin it, but you'll mm-hmm. see the Committee on Conspiracies, a tiny little group that comes forward to research enemies who are trying to infiltrate us. We like to think in our history books that, you know, the Revolutionary War happened and the British were over there and we were here and they came here and we fought them and then they went there back home. But in reality, at, at the beginning of the war in New York, as, as one example, there were almost as many loyalists as there were patriots right. on both sides. You, you know, they, your neighbor, you didn't know if they were on your side or the other side. What, you know, and it was a really complicated time. And so we needed these secret groups to kind of figure out who's who, what's what. And what it really leads to is the start of, uh, of an intelligence operation that, that to this day still runs. And, you know, we always say that the CIA, the precursor to the CIA was the OSS. But the precursor to all of it was this moment, this plot that really led George Washington to saying, my God, we need to fight back. They're coming for me. We need to fight back. And I, I love that we get to show that part of it, and you get to see how deeply uh, all the things that get launched after this plot happens as well. 
So you said a, a really important word in there, which is character, you know, something that really helps define George Washington. And I'm going to just I'm gonna use my, put my podcasting hat on here. I'm going to do a professional transition. You write all sorts of books for children as well that are all about people with character. Um, for people who may not be familiar, in addition to writing, uh, you know, fiction and bestsellers and thrillers, uh, you also write all of the I Am books that the children absolutely love. There's, you know, I Am Albert Einstein. I am Gandhi, I am Jane Goodall, there's I am Jim Henson, which we couldn't talk about last time, but it's since come out, and you do have an I am George Washington one, but you have a new I am book coming out in February, correct? We do, we have, um, you know, we just did I am Neil Armstrong and I am Sonia Sotomayor, but in February we have coming out I am Billie Jean King, um, and it's, it's a vital story, um, because it's a story, you know, Obviously, we know the story of Billie Jean King and this woman who takes on this man who says he's going to beat her in, in, in the Battle of the Sexes. Um, but, you know, it is also an incredible story about equality um, and about, you know, this gay and lesbian leader who comes out of, of this moment and, and of this battle. And for me, uh, one of the things I love most when we do this series is all the letters we get from kids. And my favorite is, that you know, it says, Dear Brad, this is the first year my daughter didn't go as a princess for Halloween. Instead, she went as Amelia Earhart, thanks to your book. Yeah. And, and, and every kid out there wants that hero to kind of look like them. You know, so when we do an African-American hero, we get letters from kids who are like, you know, this one's just like me. Thank you for that one, whether it's Jackie Robinson or Dr. King or any, you know, Rosa Parks that we've done. Um, but I really, we've never done anyone out there who is gay or lesbian who we want a hero for mm -hmm. and who needs that hero. And to me, I love that we get to share this. Um, and, and I love that when we did I Am Neil Armstrong, one of the first letters we got was, it says, I'm going to be an astronaut. Thanks to this book, I'm going to be an astronaut. Signed, Caitlin. It was a girl. Um, and, and I love that, you know, kids can use these books and be inspired. And I love that parents out there are you know, using our books to build real libraries of, of heroes for their kids and their grandkids, for their nieces and their nephews. I love that the I Am series has done that. Brad, when do you sleep? Wait, what sleep? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, the funny thing is, it, it, this makes it look like, oh my gosh, all I'm doing is writing. But the funny thing is, is um, the first conspiracy we've been working on for, the, you know, I've been working mentally on for seven years, something like that. Um, eight years since I found it. Uh, or so, I give or take, I should say. And um, so this has been worked on as a book for almost three years. And it just so happens that it's coming out right on the heels of Billie Jean King and right on the heels of the escape art. It takes me about two years to work on a book. It's just, you know, based on timing and when the publishers can put it out, it makes me look far more productive than I am. I, I'm still surfing the internet like everybody else. Oh, don't you also have a TV series coming out in the fall of 2019? We do. We do that. That has been the magic trick, man. That has been the magic. We are, we're doing the I Am series the, um, is going to be a, on PBS. They are doing a TV show. It's called Xavier Riddle and the Secret Museum. Mm -hmm. um, and it launches in November of next year. It's about Xavier, his sister, Yadina, and their best friend, Brad, who looks remarkably like me. <laughs> um, and they go back in time every episode, and they meet one of the heroes to help them solve a problem that they're having in their life. And I love... It, of course, takes our amazing artist, Chris Eliopoulos, and it's all in his style. So you really get to see um, the characters the way we do them in that, in that beautiful art style that he has. Um, and that, listen, that we have a full staff for. Um, <laughs> but it has 100% been a really 
hard-working year trying to juggle that one in there, too. Oh, my, yeah, acting like you're surfing the internet like the rest of us. Don't don't give me that. I You don't <laughs> sleep, and you are relentless. That's amazing. Um, okay, so normally at the end of our podcast, we do what we call the Nerd Nine. It's nine rapid-fire questions. People that want to hear your answers, I know because I checked. We did that a couple of years ago. So instead, did, because... Yeah. Because it's the end of 2018 when we're recording this, I'll just ask, like, do you have a book or two that you read this year that really stuck in your mind as kind of your favorite things you've read? Uh, Mr. Miracle by Tom King and Mitch Gerard. Mm-hmm. I love that. That was my favorite book of the year. Do you want to kind of give some people a little bit of background oh, on that? Oh, sorry, one? I thought we were doing the nine. Oh, oh no, yeah, no, we, we already we already did the nine. We that part we did. Oh, we because, oh, oh, it's always the same nine every time. Oh yeah, I asked this. I asked the same. Now, I'm having real deja vu right now. This is weird, but now I we always ask the same nine questions. Uh, same nine. See, I almost want to do my nine and see if I'm consistent, or I you, totally give nine different answers. We can do. But you want to do it again? Oh, we can do both. We can do both. I'll tell you. Let's let's talk about Mr. Miracle for a moment. Um, Mr. Miracle, you know, I love. I read a lot of nonfiction for research. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't read thrillers, really, because they just make me crazy. It's like a mechanic in a rental car. I'm yeah. not enjoying the ride. I'm just kind of taking it apart. Um, so, uh, but I, I love comic books, and I love, I mean, I love anything. I love young adults. I'll read anything. Um, but, boy, did Mr. Miracle by Tom King and Mitch Drads uh, just really get to me. It's basically an old character who's an escape artist. Um, and the book opens with him basically committing suicide, you know, mm-hmm. tries to commit suicide. Um, but as the world's greatest escape artist is, you know, is he trying to escape death, mm-hmm. the ultimate escape? Um, and it tells this incredible story where you don't know the whole book. Is he alive or is he dead? Is this him in hell? Is this him in heaven? Or is this him in our reality? Um, and, and I don't, I can't possibly do justice to the ending. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ending is just, you know, and I don't like endings where you kind of have to decide for yourself, mm-hmm. where you have to like the, you know, where you feel like the author punts and says you decide. I'm like, no, you're the freaking author. Tell me the answer. Thank you. I, this isn't like, you know, I never, I never like those. Um, this is an ending that just was beautiful, and and I think if you don't stick the landing, uh, you know, arguably the whole thing falls apart. But boy, it just wrapped up, um, and the story just finished, and I highly recommend that. It was my favorite book of the year by far. Okay. All right, well, let's let's roll through the the nerd nine, and then I can I will have to go back and confirm, but I okay, can yeah, send so you. Okay, yeah, let's do the nine, and then we'll and play them side by side and see if my answers are the same. We'll see. All right, well, the first one I know is going to be different because it's the what's the last book you finished reading this year? Like, what's the most you most uh, recently finished? Uh, I just finished a biography of Marie Curie. Uh, what's your favorite place to read? Oh, that's a good one. Um, you know. I think it's actually like just sitting inside listening to music. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you remember the book that made you fall in love with reading as a kid? Uh, that's going to change all the time. I would say <laughs> Tales of the Fourth Grade Nothing or Justice League of America 150. Okay. Uh, what's one place you'd like to travel that you have not yet been to? Um, I probably do want to go to China or Japan, maybe Africa. Okay. Uh, you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Uh, I love my birthday. I love my birthday, but Hanukkah's eight nights. That's uh, yeah. that's just good stuff. <laughs> See, we were yeah, we were the Jews who watched Emmerdotter's Jug Band Christmas. So that was like we were a doubly in. It was fantastic. We listen, got eight nights of it. Listen, my father's side of the family is Jewish too, so I respect that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, coffee or tea? Tea. Okay. Cats or dogs? Dogs. Uh, favorite food? Uh. 
Probably, probably uh, chicken parmesan and ice cream. <laughs> uh, if you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you pick? Uh, uh, I bet I'm consistent on this one. I pick my mother, um, my grandfather or dad, probably. But if it was a famous person, I'd pick Jim Henson, Mr. Rogers. Those are two. I think I'm almost positive. I will check, but I'm almost positive that's exactly what you said the first time. Just, if, but here's the thing. Here's the thing you have to realize is that if my answers match, that means I've had no growth in two years. <laughs> if my answers don't match, it's because not because something consistent. It's because I've had so much growth. So I can't really lose either way. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> all right. Yeah, you're either consistent or you've grown as a human. I respect that. Right, right, right. Um, those two. Oh, man. All right. Well, Brad, this was so much fun. I will tell people if they go and visit uh, your website, they can see all throughout January, you are traveling around, it looks like, doing some signings and some some author uh, you know, appearances and things like that. So be sure to check that out, people. And uh, this is actually going out the day before the first conspiracy comes out. So at this point, they should either be placing it on hold in a library or going to pre-order it so it's available for them tomorrow. Um, Brad, I guess just one last question. What do you hope people take away from reading this book? You know, I hope they actually take away um, what it means to be decent again. I feel like we've lost that. We've lost decency. And when George Bush recently died, the the word that you saw over and over again and all the write-ups on him was, was decent. And it wasn't just because he was a decent man, which he was, but it was because I, I really believe um, – that we're starving for decency in this country and this culture. And uh, I think we got to get back to that. We got to get back to leaders who uh, know how to pull us together as opposed to divide us. That's perfect. Brad, let's make sure you come back before another two years. We can see if your answers are the same. Thank you for joining us. I want to do it every time, every time. I absolutely love that. (laughs) Thank you You so much for coming on. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.